You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Take one. Knock, knock. Stephen and Dana, and we're in the room. Holy shit, what a magical day. I gotta get out of here. Welcome to In the Room with Stephen and Dana. Hi, friends. Hardly recognized you. This is the podcast. Where we... What do we do? We interview... Who? Gorgeous entertainment professionals who are wonderfully verbal. And you know what? We've never said that there were a theater podcast or a Broadway podcast. Mm-mm. We kind of do it all, you guys. And guys. our guest today... Ooh, honeys, get ready for it! Because this has nothing to do with Broadway. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Marry a show tune among us. Married. We have industry professional in the house. Oh, industry. But before we get to that, before we get to our very um, tender, uh, uh, my, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Stephen. We have not seen each other in a very long time. I see what you did there. It was very sweet and indulgent. It's called a bait and switch. So we are in the room. This room happens to contain a turtle named Colin, so he'll be splashing around in the background. Uh, so that is our ambiance like, for today. I, that's what I look would look like if I were to try to swim. Really? Yeah. Well, then swim all the time, because that's adorable. Wait, no, we should introduce you now, because we saw some shows together while you've been mm. in town. Mm-hmm. There's Pride that we did together. Oh, my God. So I think we could... Please, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. From the coast, Hillary Levitt. She's clapping for herself. I'm a producer. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that grin. <laughs> but also, also, just like you talked about a bait and switch before, you made some sort of suggestion this wouldn't be about musical theater. And not to spoil who I am, but I went to school for musical theater, so... Spoiler alert! Oops. And we saw some shows. Well, lead the way. Alright, so, well, the reason why you're here is because you do have quite an arc 
You did start in theater. Yeah. And then you somehow fucking found yourself in TV, and now you're running TV. So we'll get to all that. But we did see... I manufactured You are television. <laughs> we saw some shows. Yeah. We saw What the Constitution Needs to Me. Yeah. You Loved. some hot takes? Loved. Loved. It's the only play I've seen of the season, and I can say without <laughs> a doubt, it should have won the Tony. Without, without a, a doubt. doubt. And I will fight anybody. <laughs> it is important. It should be taught in classrooms. It is a profound piece of work. And I will truly... There's, I can't imagine anything else this season based on what I know. Not talking about quality, but just talking about importance and form. It is a very important piece, and I yeah. hope everybody gets to see it. And I... If there is not a streaming service um, already vying to tape it and put it on as if they would a comedy special. Yeah. um, That or PBS, if they do it for great performances. I just don't, like, if they're putting on, you know, comedy specials all the time, I don't know why that wouldn't be filmed as it is, not reconstructed or anything, as is, um, it should be accessible to everybody. It is an incredibly important piece of art. And so evocative of this time and this culture and the conversation, and it's really important. And um, I loved it. And how hot is she? Uh, <laughs> I I mean, I walked out of that theater. I'm like, oh my god, like, want to propose marriage to you immediately? I believe what you said to nope, me don't. in the middle of the show was, God, I'd really love to fuck her. And I normally wouldn't want to expose such exploitative language, but. Because her intelligence and her confidence and her vulnerability are so, they are sexy qualities. And sure, saying I want to fuck that person is the most exploitative way of expressing yeah, that. But really, what I think you were trying to say yeah. in a hushed tone um, in the middle of the show to me yeah, was God, yeah. this person is so um, confident and vulnerable, which is and like. And so funny. Oh, ah. Yes, but I think vulnerability is often forgotten in the conversation around sexiness, but it is an, it's inherent. It's essential. It's essential to be ugh, open, and she is. So, yeah, I'm with you. And that was one show that we saw. <laughs> that was one show that we saw. And I mean, then, what do you say after that? That's what theater was born to it's do. It's transformative, and... What I also love about, I mean, obviously it's a one-woman show in, well, I mean, there's other people involved, but mm-hmm. um, but she's talking to you, it is engaging, it is breaking the fourth wall, and and so much, there's so much to be said about proscenium-based theater mm-hmm. that I right. think, that I love that, but I do think that we are at a time culturally and anthropologically speaking where engaging, truly engaging the audience is really, really important which is why we're seeing an uptick in podcasts and true crime and documentary. We as an audience and as a people, a society, mm. are looking for ways to connect and engage with one another and, and go, oh, you, you feel that too, you feel that too. And so I think, because we were talking about this the other day about, you know, the obviously the, 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 the play that won Best Tony, The Ferryman, which I did not see, being very clear. But it's a traditional piece of theater. It's a proscenium-based piece of theater. And I think that's amazing. But um, I think it's important that our forms, 
you know, rules are meant to be broken. And just because this is talking to the audience doesn't mean it's it should have some special award. It is just as much a play as anything else, but it is doing something that is um, a really, I think, interesting um, evolution of what theater can be, which is engaging me. Yeah, and she's. it feels like she's doing something like breaking all of the rules a little. Like yes. it felt kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like, ooh, ooh, this is really, this is good. This is getting me on that level. Yes. And I'm totally with you yeah. the whole way. And I cried four times. So, yes. Um, spontaneous. Like there was no, it wasn't actually a build up. It was really, and you can see, I really don't know how she does it every nope. night because it is so emotional. And it's constantly, I, I would imagine for her, proving to be more and more and more, um, uh, uh, I don't, I don't Cathartic? know. Maybe, no, I think, the opposite? Um, um, important, because, like, for example, the first time I cried in the show was, um, I think it's the third point she's talking about, like, you know, article 30, whatever B. And just earlier that week was, um, I mean, obviously we're in a very, very um, terrible time in our country when it comes to immigration. And just earlier this week, that horrible image. Um, mm -hmm. Jesus. And Couldn't be more timely. And, and having seen that image, we've grown so you know, desensitized to imagery because it's all floating at us. And I saw that photo and was obviously horrified, but not driven to tears, just like, holy fuck. Fuck, it's, con it's crazy. But then when she started talking about it and you put it in context of what this country could be and should be and was designed to be, like, in the same week of seeing mm. yeah. our entire country falling flat on its face on all the principles we've been built upon. Like, it's like it's somebody kicked the foundation out from under us in that one image. And then her talk, and I was like, and it blew my mind, and I just started bursting into tears because, really, just like she, as a child, I, I feel so inherently American in my principles and what we're founded upon. And the, so, anyway, this is the longest way of saying. It. I think the show it needs to be seen by so many people because mm -hmm. what she's talking about is so much more than literally the Constitution or her story, but just how much you're. Um, uh, as a kid, you have optimism about the world and how important it is to actually re maintain that optimism even when you see the realities playing out in a mm -hmm. different way. That, to, mm -hmm. that message is so important. And to be able to do that in a theatrical setting, um, I just think, pushes forward the medium so much more than yes. anything I can pop. That's why I'd say I will fight you to it even without saying anything else because I know for a fact nothing else is doing anything like that to the audience. And mm -hmm. delivering it in a way that yeah. she did. It was a personal story. Oh. She, it looks like she's, or it feels like she's kind of turning Broadway on its head. Like, oh, I didn't know you could do that on Broadway. Yeah. Oh, and oh also, my God, now she's doing that. I didn't know you could do that either. That's, okay. Totally. Right. And, and, and the, the end, not but, and, she is entertaining you as well. Yes. And that is the biggest key. A spoonful of sugar... Totally. The medicine go down. You must Trojan horse an audience. And if you told mm. me that that show was about someone like reading the Constitution, mm, I don't know. But you, the way you you get me in there, and then God, it's 
just is so much more impactful than a polemic about, you know, immigration. That show says more about where yes. we are and what is important about our fundamentals as a society than any sort of play about, like, the immigrant experience, you know, like, it's just, you, you, once you can put yourselves in those shoes, once you can hear the impact, it's just remarkable. And it's, it's kind of crazy that she wrote it. She wrote it, she, she did everything, and she's acting it. So, like, ooh, stay away from Heidi Schreck, because she is on fire! Boom. She can do it all. Like Barbara. Right? That was about me, not Heidi Schreck. That was about me. Tell us what you're doing now, and then we'll go back and start from little Hillary Levitt. (laughs) Oh, Hulu Levitt. Well, what I'm doing literally right now is sitting in this apartment. (laughs) Well, very recently you started your own production company. Yes, so I... um, I have a production company, which I do want to demystify that in a lot of ways, which is, um, it's me, and because (laughs) I employ myself, um, you have to create what is called an LLC or an S-Corp for um, business purposes, and therefore I have a company, Um, but that company is just myself. And um, this came by way of, uh, a career, about a decade old career in television. Um, I've worked at a studio and I've worked at a network, and uh, but now I'm uh, producing. And so the starting of a company wasn't necessarily the the goal, but it is the means by which I can work. And um, so I uh, I have an exclusive television producing deal with Hulu. And my company is how they um, pay. Fantastic. So what does that mean? You just walk around all day looking for talent? Walk, hooking up writers and directors? That's how it goes. Yeah, so um, it can work in a couple of different ways. And I think if you talk to a bunch of different people about producing, they might give you different answers as to what that really means and or how they go about their business. And I... I think, again, in a way of demystifying, I don't think that there is any one way to go about doing it. Um, So I can only talk about what I do, and I'm very, um, my goal, and I've known this from a very young age, is to help people make their stuff. I I do not harbor secret interests to write or direct. Um, I think those are um, disciplines um, that frankly I don't have. Um, I'm sure I could, like, I, no, I'm sure I can't. And, um, sure of it. And I feel actually very, um, uh, I don't know if the right word is blessed or privileged or just something that I think it takes people quite a bit of time to find the very niche thing that they're good at or want to do. And I feel like I have known this for a very long time. I didn't have. Oh, that's have so rare. Yeah, I had no vernacular for it. I didn't know what the word producer was. and um, But I just kind of distinctly remember from a very young age going, well, I love film and TV. I want, I'm going to work in it. Um, and uh, But I, don't, I remember I was in eighth grade 
and I know what seat I was sitting in, and it was like, they asked, you know, asked him, like, what do you want to be when you grew up? But we're beyond that age where you're, like, firefighter yeah. and, like, shit like that. Um, and so it was very, I was very pragmatic, and if you know me now or <laughs> looking at me, you're, like, you must have been a precocious asshole as a child because um, it hasn't changed all that much. <laughs> but I was writing, um, like, what I wanted. I was like, well, I know I wanted to work in Hollywood. That's what I thought it was. I didn't know it was a business. I didn't know an industry, just Hollywood. And I was like, well, I don't want to write. I knew that. I never had the discipline for it. I was like, well, and I don't want to act. And so I think I put, at the first, I put director because... I didn't know what a filmmaker was at the time, I did, and I didn't know what a producer was at the time. So I was like, well, the person who helps make all the stuff happen. And so it's always been in my mind yeah. that producing is helping. Um, and then um, I started doing theater because I did not have a film or TV program in the um, Jersey Shore High School that I went to. <laughs> you don't say. You don't say. But also because, I mean, I'd been introduced to theater earlier on, um, mostly through musical movies, and then also growing up in the Jersey Shore, we took some class trips to, to the city to see the shows, which I now recognize must have been very difficult for my mom because it was quite expensive, and she was saying a long time. So, thank you, Mom. Shout out to Shout Mary. out, Max. Um, but, uh, but it was all storytelling to me. And um, I think a theater director... Um, at that level, different when you're developing theater and you're working at ma making new theater. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about like directing like Little Shop of Horrors or something for like some community playhouse, to me, which is a very respectable thing to do, but really it's actually closer to producing than people I think mm. would imagine. Because my job at that point is like Little Shop of Horrors is what it is, you know, or whatever the play. It, that's what it is. It's not. We're <laughs> not changing that. And then I've got the people who are going to put it on, the actors, everybody. And then I've got my stage, which is, if I'm lumping everything together, my budget, my whatever. And then it is my job as the director to negotiate these three things for the best experience for the audience. And that is the role of the producer. I've got the, the thing, I've got the people, and I've got the money. And now what can I do to give us our best shot at connecting with the audience? Um, and that's going to be compromises in different places, um, and and also sort of a rallier and a system in that way. But um, it's actually translated to producing film and TV in a very, 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 I think, effective way. Mm -hmm. um, or hopefully, I don't know. We'll see how my career goes from here. But that's been my um, <laughs> take on it. So what? So the, this is probably the longest way of answering the question of what I'm doing now. Is when I. Um, started articulating what I wanted to do, which is different than forming the company, by the way. The company really is, like I said, a means to mm -hmm. an end. When I made up this job for myself, I was really modeling it off of two things, which was, um, one, um, the old studio system of in-house producing where the, the, the big film studios would have these people. That's why the producer gets the Oscar. Yeah. He's really controls it. Productions and then two is dramaturgy, which is an art not really found in film and television very often. Mm -hmm. Both of those things um, kind of bring that relationship into the film and TV world um, and be somebody who 
the artist could talk to both about left and right brain things, mm. and then I can translate that and bring that over to the business side of things, which is I spent a decade trying to understand and learn about and manipulate. That's a huge skill. Yeah. That's a huge skill. I think that's probably my number one skill is being able to have conversations about all of those things with all of those different people from a very pragmatic place. Um, because my goal, my only goal, is to get this thing seen by everybody. So we all have to have a collective North Star. And I think, um, you know, not to make this about theater since this is not a theater podcast. It's not. Tell all of your friends. It's not a theater podcast. But I think I wish that everybody studied theater in school um, in some regard. Because what it teaches you, um, aside from, you know, fabulous art, which is great as well, is communication and collaboration and mm -hmm. the democratization of art. So mm -hmm. when the curtain goes up, you know, there's certainly bigger roles than other people, you know, the lead actress versus this, whatever. But there's no more important roles. And that is really critical to understand mm -hmm. that you have a bit you the lead actress it doesn't matter if the lights don't go on and the choreography doesn't matter if the bench didn't come out and also everything is equally as important even if the roles are bigger or smaller mm -hmm. and um and then also that you just gotta your resources are fairly limited so everybody roll up your sleeves and sweep the sheds and kind of get in there mm -hmm. so there's so many practical skills we learn from theater um Absolutely. when it comes to communicating with other people um, and, and building something um, that I think just translate probably to any business. We met doing theater up in Maine. We did. Summer stocky, kind of. Yeah. It was certainly was theatrical. Yeah. Um, we were... Actually, it's really interesting, that place, or that experience. I was thinking about this this weekend, or it's not a weekend, today's Friday, um, but it's the 4th of July holiday, so I was out, and I was, um, out east on Long Island, and I was with a friend of mine who had, uh, very kindly invited me to his home, and, um, and he was friends with all these people from his high school that, uh, were all there, they've all known each other for so long, and my ex was the same way, she had all these friends from high school, at least these people that you've known for a long time, and for various reasons um i don't really have that i don't really have a lot of communication with anybody i went to high school with mm -hmm. um i mean I, I don't live there anymore my family doesn't live there anymore also i didn't really come into my own in high school whatever but the point being that there's not very many people who have known me my whole life and so even if they all those people have grown apart from one another which i'm sure that's true to, in varying degrees to all these people i was with they still, it, they have this context for each other for years and years and years that just has this comfort. And Kwisasana, this place that we worked at, is actually my version of high school or, or college because it was around the same time, so it's adolescence. It's, I mean, yeah. it was our college years, so we're a little bit more formed. Yeah. But so many of us were like these weirdo theater people and who had chosen to give up their summers of going home, which a lot of people do during college, um, to go to this place and essentially find ourselves so, it, for as bonkers and wild as it is, 
uh, of a place, I'm so grateful to it because it gave me this thing that I was missing and I didn't really have. Yeah. Um, and it is my, like, the people who've known me longest as the person I am today. I actually don't, I'm quite thankful <laughs> I don't know anybody who knew me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. You are welcome. Um, yeah. It's very, so it's really interesting. And that said, it's so specific that whenever we talk about it, I feel like there's a lot of people who are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, you about? can't. You can't really understand what it was. But for the this space, it was uh, a, like a dirty dancing type resort in Maine on a lake, so about an hour, 20 minutes from the coast. So we're inland, and it's a resort that, like Dirty Dancing, rich New York Jews come to in the summer. Um, (laughs) Or Boston. Or Boston. um, Just rich Jews. And maybe some others, but predominantly Jewish. And I am Jewish, so it was fine by me. You can say Jewish. I can say Jewish. And... uh, the variation is that they came for a week. It wasn't like they stayed for the whole summer. So actually it created this really interesting, um, speaking of Greek myths, Sisyphean. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, Chrysosana is a Greek myth. Because, so every Saturday there would be guest turnover. So by the time you got to August, you'd really done this routine. Uh, a few times. A few times. And skin is um, crawling. Um, but the, the staff, you know, was the staff during the day and then performers at night. And it's just for essentially 90 days is disparate group of people um, go to the woods of Maine and put on a show. Um, but are also like 18 to 22 for the most part. But then there were also what was weird about it was it wasn't like other um well, I guess it's like a, a, like a lot of summer stocks where you're, um, you are bringing together all these different age groups, and I've done other ones, um, so that you have this interesting, like, group, like, age dynamic happening, but the other thing about Chrysosana was it wasn't just a theater, so we were also mixing in, like, I think, like, one of the pastry chefs was, like, working in Alaska, and, like, you know, like, there was, yes, like, random people, because it was also, like, really good food like they would actually get like really good five chefs, star, like yeah. five star quality food then there was also opera so and those tend to be um an, a slightly older performer set because to be an opera singer you have to typically study your voice um, and, and study longer so it, it was in addition to bringing together disparate groups of like 18 to 22 year olds they were also bringing in all these other people and it was it was so formative. So formative. I mean, my college experience also kind of lumps in Quisasana. Because sure. a lot of my college friends went to Quisasana with me. Yeah. And then I would see them for the year, and we'd have, like, this, you know, Quisasana inside jargon. And then we would go the next year again. Yeah. It was so fun. Well, and you had a lot of um, college classmates with you. Yeah. So the artistic director of this resort... He basically just recruited from his alma mater. So he went to Wisconsin Stevens Point. He went mm. to ASU, and then the woman who uh, directed the musicals, who had gone to ASU, ran the theater program at Pace. So it was pretty wow. much Pace, ASU, 
and Wisconsin Stevens Point. To the point and where... And NYU. And the Manhattan to, School of Music. Yeah. But I, I know more people from the state of Wisconsin than any other state. Other than the ones I've lived in, I think me too. I think me too. We would come from all over the country to go to this little place in the woods for ninety days. I know so many of you. I've been to Watoma. Wow. For Thanksgiving. We came to my Thanksgiving. I kind of want to do that. Thanks. It was super fun. I'm coming. Inviting myself. Um, There's room. Anyway, uh, it was very formative for so yeah. many reasons. And also, I think my the three summers I had there were all wildly different. You know, I think your mm-hmm. first summer is an interesting thing. Um, the second summer, I think, was probably the most informative in terms of um, the friendships formed. So that was a year, like, a core set of our friends were all concentrated in that summer. Was that the Eric Harper? Eric and Adam. Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, And then the third summer, I mean, this is more personal in that my father had passed away just before going there. So it was a very different kind of summer for me. And I actually, like, read a few books that were, like, just by happenstance, some of the things that have sort of changed my life in a lot of ways. But it was a totally different thing for me. And, um, uh, but I was very happy to ultimately be there. It's so cold. So good, right? I froze the Cheers, mugs. y'all. This is my first time uh, making a Moscow cheers. meal. Hillary, cheers. you were like, okay, so like all of Dana's friends, I just, the second I meet Are them. Are recording? Yeah. Oh, I never stopped. Oh, good. But like I was saying, I, I just, I steal your friends, so thank you. You're welcome. Poaching. Poaching. Yeah. Poaching. Um, and I'm always like, you're so too cool for school for me. Me? Yeah, you're the coolest person I've ever met. That can't be true. It's absolutely true. Tell us what it's like to be a cool lesbian in LA. Oh, come on. God, I really I'm, sell it for me. I relate more to being a cool lesbian in LA than I do being a hot gay man in New York. Oh, that's real. Let's talk about that. And that's fucked up because LA is in the mix. Oh, yeah, we have to well, talk about Well, you're from LA, so you are How you different. like LA. I do. I love LA. And in fact, You've caught me, so I've been here for a week now. Yes. And I was supposed to fly back um, to L.A. three days from now. Because I'm being, I'm not being specific because you might be listening to this a year from now. Mm-hmm. But I w- I've been here for over a week, um, about eight days at this point in total. I'm supposed to fly back three days from now, which would be an additional three days to what I Eleven total. Been. And I was coming back. I've been out in um, Fire Island and the Hamptons. And on the way back to the city today, I changed my flight. I cannot wait to go home. But also, you were here during World Pride. It's been very busy. It's very intense. It's very intense. And it it was a trip I chose to do. Mm -hmm. I came for myself. I came for Pride. I came then and saw how close it was to Fourth of July. And I'm so thrilled with all of that. I literally do not know how any of you live here. It um, well, you did for a long time. I know, and yeah. I, 
I truly believe, and we can talk about it individually if any of you would like, that living in New York <laughs> DM her is Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> and that's what Elaborate, elaborate. Um, you sort of, unless you make a shit ton of money and have complete autonomy to do whatever you want, which is inclusive of getting the fuck out of here whenever you want. Yes. You've got a nice house and... In the yep. Hamptons or Fire Island or somewhere else, you're by coastal, which a lot of people at that level of monetary freedom are, unless that, you make an incredible amount of compromises to just survive here. It, ones that you're not even fully aware of. Um, sure. Again, yep. that's the point of Stockholm Syndrome. But I I actually, I really love New York. This is not actually I can tell. New York. I- I can absolutely tell the difference when you um, talk about it. Because I, I revere, I, I, for the last four years I haven't been here, but my work has brought me here, and Dana knows this, I, I've come for like 48 to 72 hours from my usual trips, and actually I usually leave them going, oh wow, that was a great trip. But I actually distinctly remember, um, it might have been two trips ago, I was walking home, we were somewhere in Midtown, and I was staying at a hotel near Central Park, and... Um, it was one of those beautiful nights where there's it's, there's a breeze, but it's not cold, it's not too hot. The, it was, like, fucking perfect. And I actually, I had had, like, it was one of those perfect whirlwindy New York days where, like, I was here for work, and I had this great meeting with this comedian, and then she invited us to mm. her show that she was workshopping down at one of those, um, that place where they test it's out that material. Black and you, yeah, and you can't, whatever. Where Elizabeth Ashley used to work. There you go. And um, and and then went to go see a show that my friend was in, and then we went backstage to the show. You know, like you just get caught up in the vortex. So, yeah. And then, then walking home to my hotel, and it was beautiful weather, and I was like, holy shit, what a magical day. And immediately went, I gotta get out of here. Because those days are so magical, and they are what keep people here. Yeah. And that is not real life here. It just isn't. Correct. And um, hanging on for like 10 days out of your existence is crazy. And what I have found quite lovely about living in LA, which doesn't necessarily perpetuate the same kind of possibilities of magical days Mm -hmm. um, on the whole, that said, I like knowing that that is my vacation not my home base. My home base is this ultimately very pleasant existence. Stress-free. Stress-free. The, 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 the weather is generally quite lovely. I mean, obviously, it can get hotter in different areas and whatever, um, and you don't have the seasons, blah, 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 overrated, let me tell you. Um, certainly traffic, but look, this city is fucked when it comes to traffic, so I'm tired of that excuse. But geographically speaking, you know, we're actually topographically the topography of LA is really mind-blowing. You see the ocean and you see the mountains and there are scientific studies that seeing these things are really helpful, like dopamine and endorphins. And it's just... Totally. That's the same with outdoor space in New York. It's like... Even just coming from Manhattan to Astoria and like walking here, yes, there's all that gross construction, like where the bus stop used to be. Yeah. Uh, But like, the buildings are less high. Yeah. And there's, like, bushes that come out into the sidewalk. 
Like, it's, hedges. Right, and that, like, that is, like, legit the lowest bar for what you right. should And, like, where you live up in the Heights, it's gorgeous. You're, like, near park. the Whiskers. I did all that. So it's, like, uh, yeah, so if you, like, pay an exorbitant amount of money to go home to a shoebox without outdoor space or, and, like, there are a lot of gives and takes, 100%. And it's really, um, and I, I think what's interesting about the mindset of um, living in New York and having been in that is it's like a badge mm-hmm. of honor kind of vibe. And I actually have always, I remember the first time, I'll, I'll keep this theater related if you guys want. Please the don't. We're not a theater podcast. That um, <laughs> the line in company, um, I think it might be. Kathy or whatever says it to Robert says, you know, there's a time to leave New York and a time to come to it, time to leave it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I really do believe that that is true because I, I'm born and bred East Coast. I've been coming to the city since I was a kid. I went to college here. Like, I get it. But life is not this hard. And because life is already hard. It, it What we do as humans I mean, don't get me started. We could have a real existential Humanity, see go. At, see you at the beer garden. <laughs> like, but no, but no, it this is, is it's yeah, very it's real. hard. What we do, I mean, this is, uh, we are truly like animals and evolution, and I could go real hippy-dippy on this, and like, let's go there with drugs and stuff. But it's already an emotional mind fuck what's going on. Anthropologically speaking, I think we're in a crazy time when it comes to communicating and connecting with one another and what that means, whether it's dating or working or just relating to human beings. So then to add on top of it, this city, which at its best is magical and at its worst, when you're at your worst, it's not... Terrible. It's just... I, I, I think that's what people... They like conquering it because it is, it's an, a relentless place. But when you are having a bad day, this city is like cool. Smells it. Like smells it. Knife, twist it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like LA, when I'm having a bad day, I'm like, okay, cool, but uh, I can go like on a hike if I want, or I can go to the, whatever neighborhood I live in. Like there's relief, or I have this backyard. Like there's something that actually relieves me of the burdens of my day. Whereas New York, I I can chase. It's like a drug. But I can't actually be relieved of my burdens. Um, and usually, like, if you want to be anywhere on time for New York, you better just, like, casually go about it. Because if you try and make an effort, cool, you're waiting for a train for 20 minutes in the middle of the fucking day. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, I don't think it should be that hard. Um, when we already have so much hardship to go through. And that's some of the literal hardships that, um... We are so privileged to not experience. I mean, like, literally, there are horrifying things happening right now. But also, the human existence is one that is just... I mean, you said to... Like, we could talk about what is being... I'm putting in air quotes, being a cool lesbian in L.A. I don't know what that is or what that means. I do, I'm not part of this scene in any way. I feel constantly internal, sort of like... What am I? Who am I? I don't know anybody. Like all the time, and so and if 
the perception is that I'm innocent. <laughs> like, I can't even imagine what it's like for people who don't even have that perception. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm -hmm. life is hard already on all these different levels. It's real nice to come home to a patio that has a view of the west side. <laughs> and you said, I mean, you brought up there's a time to come to New York and there's a time to leave it. I feel those things all the time. hard. Yeah. I feel that, I feel, I felt the coming to it hard and I'm beginning to feel the, the leaving it hard because we've talked about it. Oh, it's yeah. real. I, I mean, I, um, I'm probably an extreme case in that I always wanted to be in California because to me I associate it with a, like my dreams coming true. I always to sure, and it. that's New York for me. I came from Wisconsin, right. so right. I didn't come from here. I don't have the this is my hometown thing. Right, and but and that's why I might be an extreme example. Yeah. I always want had my eye on being out west, but I definitely yeah. what I mean. I think you probably saw this the last few years of me in New York, where I went from being like because I look I actually I mean I got that vibe when I was a kid. I can't would see the the Empire State Building you're like whoa like wide-eyed and all that. I, I, I do romanticize New York very much, but I definitely, like, it beat me down. And I do think that circumstantially, like, yes, it did matter that I was living in Park Slope and commuting to um, yeah. Midtown. And yeah. um, our offices, when I first started working at BBC America, were near Bryant Park, and that was lovely. And Bryant Park is really wonderful, though it's in Midtown, and then our office has moved to near Penn Station, and, like, swimming the salmon upstream, no. honey, oh boy, that's, we, yeah, I work near Penn Station. You're so right, circumstantially, New York matters, they make all yeah, these subway the ads for whatever, and they're like, you know, street easy, you know, where I work, where my friends live, and then there's this little middle part of the Venn diagram that's like... Find your perfect place. Yeah. No, but here, I can tell you, like, living in Astoria, we are coming to you from my best friend's apartment. Drew Hollenbeck of In the Room with Stephen and Dana. They, they live right up the street. Mm -hmm. So I have this foundation of, like, oh, where I live also, you know, like, you guys in the West yeah. Hollywood or wherever you have resided I in LA. Never live in but, you know, like, it's easier for, like, being in groups of, like, you know, if they were, like, come over and they lived two stops away, uh-uh! No, I know. And so, so what's so interesting to me, though, tonight. which is, um, because one thing I do want to drive home is this is not about New York versus L.A. I think these cities are extremely incomparable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the things that are comparable are actually the things, I, I, I don't think people recognize just how eerily similar they are because it's life. It's not about the geography. So when you say two stops away and people complain about how sprawling LA is, I'm like, yeah, when I lived in Brooklyn, Astoria didn't matter to me. We we would maybe meet in Midtown because we worked there, but you can't get to Astoria in Brooklyn. Like, it's not happening. Yeah. So, the, sure, instead of it being a three-mile distance, it's a 12-mile distance in LA, but it's the same mentality. I'm not doing that. Or um, when people talk about like a commute or something like that, I'm like, okay, it's just temperament. Like I am down with 40 minutes of traffic in my car listening to jams because I prefer that. Whereas some people, and I can't read on the subway because I no, get motion sure. sickness. Yeah. So if you can read on the subway and that makes you happy, um, 
but it's still 40 minutes of And there's no AC in your car, like, in your subway car. And the guy next to you is scratching his balls. Right, and And there's a kid screaming. And some people want to be in the throes of it. For whatever reason, that floats your boat. Good for you. Well, it grinds on you after, what, 11 years living here. I do think that most people don't want that ever at all. But you convince, that's the Stockholm Syndrome I'm talking about, where you convince, like, I still hear from a lot of people that the reason they don't want to live in L.A. is traffic. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, again, not comparing things. You can want to live in New York, you can want to live in L.A., but traffic cannot be the reason. One, traffic here is pain in. Two, what is the difference between 40 minutes in your car and 40 minutes on the goddamn subway? There's none. Like, it's the being responsible for your own transportation part. It's like, ooh, yeah, I'm going to have to grow up. It's the car payment. It's the gas. It's the... Sure. There, that yes, lifestyle. There's definitely concern. Like, but, and you can say that. I don't... I can't afford a car. I don't want to do these things. But to say traffic, I'm like, yeah. are you crazy? And also, and I also, actually know several people in L.A. without cars. I know several people in L.A. who have chosen to, let's say, live in Culver City because they work in Culver City and they can actually walk somewhere. Just going to say, the traffic thing is for all the extras you're doing anyway. Your day-to-day commute, you're not going to live. No, just like you live near your friends. Like It's literally the same things. It's just your preference and how you deal with them. I don't want to be on a subway car with a lot of people. And also, I don't have, there's no novelty in it for me anymore. But I think, I think it's just a, a, a maturation of sort of um, you understanding what you want out of life. And to me, of course I it changes. want adventure it changes. and New York. Like, I love New York. I, like, it really is not about New York versus yeah. L.A. This is about a lifestyle. And I would like to live in a place that is generally pleasant. I don't think anybody would ever use the word generally pleasant. Pleasant to describe New York. <laughs> nope. They're going to use other nope. magical words. Like this sure. is not a derogatory conversation. You say it's magical. It's like it's hustling and it, it's the invigorating. Invigorate all these the energy. It's infectious. All those things are fucking true. But when I think about well, what would I like my home base to be? I'm not thinking like magic all nighters. Like I'm like yeah. I oh. Well, I'd really like the weather to be quite pleasant and have easy access to nature and um, yeah. grocery stores that mm. can fit two carts down one aisle and, you know, um, not have to plan my day based on what I can carry and all the all these little things that start to add up. I quite often feel like a donkey. <laughs> I was like, this cannot be my... And I show up to places. I'm great when I wake up. My makeup's great. Walk out the door... Boom! Absolutely human, one hundred percent of the time. Look at me now. Doesn't even have to be summer. The winter is human. I know it's gross, um, but also let's not mince words. Your career is out there too, so you weren't. Well, just, so that's yes. I mean, it's I will a huge say, deal. anybody who wants to work in film and television, certainly on the producing executive side of the industry, um, you cannot be. In I'm sorry. Well, you describe television. Nonfiction is here. You're sure. A lot yes, of nonfiction. And a lot of the talk shows are here. Rachel Ray, Wendy Williams. Yes. Uh, Apologies. Regis and Kathy Lee. Apologies. Okay. Apologies for lumping for um, lumping scripted and unscripted television into one category. 
I recognize that um, most of, if not all, of the big jobs in um, nonfiction and unscripted art in New York, production-wise. But even so, the if you want to work at the network level of executive decisions, it's LA. LA is the home base of entertainment. And um, I had one of the few scripted jobs in New York and really did not understand. I knew I had a ceiling because I knew the growth pattern, but I did not realize the ceiling of potential until I got to LA and went, oh, this really? is the business. Okay. Yeah, I thought I was doing that. the business, and I had I knew nothing about the industry, truly, until not not how to do my job, the industry, until I went to LA, which are different things. I reading scripts and giving notes and connecting with artists and putting deals through business fair, all that stuff. I you can learn that whatever company you happen to be at, the industry and how it functions and um, the Politics nuances. Of it? Politics, yes, but to me that always gives off a negative connotation to it because we, the word political, you know, or um, I just mean how it really works. And so, for somebody outside of the system or outside of the city or whatever, um, working with you know nepotism, it, it, it or working with people you know gets classified as nepotism, um, when in reality. Sure, there's some of that. It's the people you know, it's this, whatever. But it actually is a survival tactic. It's not an exclusion tactic. Yep. It is, you meet people that you like. It's fucking hard. Um, there's so, it's an onslaught of material and information and money and pressure and time. And so, yeah, I do want to work with the people I know and I like and I'm friends with. And the reason I know them is because we're in the same goddamn city and I see them all the time. So it's not about exclusion. And I think being in New York or being outside of the system, it gives off this vibe of like, you can't come in here because mm. we're all giving each other jobs. No, no, no. Please come over here. We'd love to know who you are because we want to just be working with the people we, we just know. Need but you I need you to come accessible. to me. Um, this is great because it's a. People who work in the industry in entertainment, the question is always, and people, you know, even like uh, performers on Broadway, there are a lot of them who have migrated to LA, and that's like bonkers to me as someone yeah. who's well, just I like, you, say, truly. What, you were in Sister Act yeah. and now you're in LA writing? Like, what well, I do you want to say? I do want to say performing and the talent side of things are all totally different beasts in that it certainly requires your break, which is. Um, Holy and it's not at all up to you. Yeah. Um, in so many ways. Um, so slightly different on the, the non-talent um, side of the game. But here, I'm actually like living proof of the difference between New York and L.A. Um, and if you don't know me, I think you would look at my career on paper and go, that doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> it, it just in terms of on paper, like it's like a, a not a standard, but a fairly st everybody's resumes are standard when you're looking at words. It's like worked here, worked here, worked here. Okay. Um, in four years, I went from being the manager of programming at BBC America to having an exclusive producing deal at Hulu. Now, obviously, some of that comes with my skill, my personality, whatever. I'm not, I'm not 
um, at all um, suggesting that I don't want the specificity of meaning, you know, fine. But there is time and place and access, and um, there was only so far I was going to get by talking to people on the phone um, and not being in it and not seeing how it worked and functioned. And again, I have the skill set and the acumen to take advantage of that and do it in a room, like, I think in a very cool way. But had I not been in LA, like, people are like, wait, you've only been here for four years? I'm like, yeah. Like, you've lived in LA for four years? Yeah. Which feels like no time and so much time. Feels so old. Yeah. I feel like it was last year that you moved there. And it's been four years. And so much has happened in those four years for me. Like I said, I moved out there for a job, moved out there with, um, with a partner, and now I resign that job. I do not have that partner. Like, all my yeah. whole life is completely shifted in ways I couldn't have predicted. Um, but it's really not an L.A. or New York thing. It really is. Um, you go where you have to take advantage of opportunities, and you have to have, I think, always micro and macro goals with anything you're doing at the same time. And um, I just don't know that if, if your goal is to make it in Hollywood, you can't be in New York. <laughs> well, Hollywood is that, Hollywood. Exactly. So, and I think... Unless you want to work on Wall Street or Broadway, like things that are New York specific. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And you make the necessary adjustments. Yeah. I have that conversation with myself a lot, you know, do I love New York? because of what it is or do I love it because Broadway is here and if Broadway were in the middle of Missouri would I go there? Well it's the question of do you love theater? Theater's in Missouri. Theater's everywhere. But yes except that if you have ambition I mean you can love theater and I love I love theater. I remember having and I guess I I want to clarify like as a person who wants to be a performer like on Broadway. following that you're right. like am I in New York because I love New York and Broadway is part of that yeah. or would I say fuck New York in a second no, if all these theaters I, packed up and moved like could you reach the same success level somewhere else no would I relocate do I love New no, York no, or do I, I love that Broadway is in New York right that's what I'm saying like the reason you don't move from New York now is because there is oh, theater I see. in Chicago, there is theater in LA. But the pinnacle is, of it, of it is, air quotes, is your, here. Your ambition, your ambition, I think, often, or should, or whatever, there's no right or wrong way of yeah. life. You do yeah. you. But if the ambition is to succeed in your field, and that field is in a specific place, you should go to that place. Unless, of course, the love of the art, of the thing, is much more practical to you. Like, if I just loved working on TV shows, technically, I could, of course, live in New York. I could live in Vancouver, Atlanta, where a lot of things are filmed. I could live in London. They make great shit over there. But my ambition to succeed at a certain level, not in a fame way, to be very clear, but just the kind of stuff I want to be working on, the audience I want to reach, I can't. Those markets are small. So my ambition Mm. outweighs any other decision when it comes to that. And then, luckily, the type of work that I do allows me to travel to a lot of these places and see them. So I think 
at any given time, and it's different for individuals, you ha you do have to weigh like what is most important to me right now. And at some point, if perf if just performing straight up, like the act of performing, is your goal, then yeah, you don't need to be in New York. There's fucking great theater everywhere. You could be in London. You could be in Chicago. L.A. does have great theater going on right now. It's like really kind of remarkable. You could go anywhere. If you have ambitions to be on Broadway and to win a Tony and whatever, as um, whatever, whatever those kinds of loftier goals are, then yeah, you gotta be here. You gotta be here. So my goal is not yeah, just to make art. Yeah. That I always had that, like, I, I love theater. And you could probably have asked me the same question. I think I've been saying it since I was in high school doing theater. Yeah. I always wanted to go the Mike Nichols route of theater. Mm. I want to win a fucking Oscar and then come back and do whatever the hell I wanted to do on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I don't, I really, as I find it admirable and I think it's fantastic that people do theater at all levels. I did not want to be doing like random readings of children's musicals and like yeah. 24 hour play workshops in Greenwich Village to an audience of nobody for no money. Yeah, like I, it just, it didn't fulfill me that way. And what, some people could call that shallow, some people, but it wasn't. I just, I really do want to talk to an audience. Mm -hmm. And um, like I, I, I think that I think storytelling is really that's why I like I love the idea of Broadway. I think you can reach a lot of people, and so that's why I'm saying Heidi Drexler like put it out to the world. Theater is so powerful. I but miss the, the Rosie which, O'Donnell show. Well, the Saul show on it makes me like unpin something I pinned silently, which is like there's this kind of the second wave of preserving theater and filming it more. We, John and I went and saw. Kinky Boots at AMC. Yes! Mm -hmm. How was it? It the was London? so great. It was so, like, spooky to see. Just with that show specifically, I, we've known so many people in and out of it, and we just kind of, we understand the timeline, and to see it with a whole bunch of people that I have never known, and to see them walk across the stage with that mug that I know is that mug because Tori Ross loves a prop. Mm-hmm. Like that, it was kind of like out of body in that way, um, but it, I what I came away with was how well it was preserved, mm -hmm. how well that is now forever. That is time capsuled forever, and it is represented well. It's not a movie musical of Kinky Boots that is. No, it's honoring the theater. Whatever it is, yeah. filming. But also the I theatrical love, production. I love touring companies. Like I, th I like theater should be done everywhere for sure. So, and but I've always wanted to work in the commercial art of theater, yeah. and therefore it was not about not wanting to slum it in theater, not finding um, a, the virtue in doing theater at that level because it does take time and time and time. It was really like. I think me personally will have more of an impact if I can break through over here, figure out how to get to a place where I can then come back to the thing that I love and do it at a level that's going to reach people. Mm -hmm. um, but we need both, like both ways. Oh yeah, it's totally we need both. Otherwise, totally yeah. and and I will say, um, like there, I my love of theater is not nearly as deep as it. my love is for storytelling 
So I have equal love for film, television, um, theater, whatever. Whereas, like, if you, that's what I'm saying. Like, if the, if the, your love is rooted in performing, right? When you boil you it all what down, what's doing. left in you the pot? You don't care what you're doing. Mm-hmm. For me, my love is storytelling, and so storytelling to me, the whole point is the audience. So I need a wider audience. So it, it so I've never cared about what medium we're doing it in. I will adjust myself to work with the artist in that medium mm-hmm. to help them tell their story. Loving theater is a different thing. I love theater, but it's not like in sure. my bones. My bones are to your passion is not storytelling on a stage, right? But though I love it and I sure. love the medium and I would love to work in and it, and it seems again, like you can't wait to do it. Oh my god, I would in a heart. But you're okay saying, right. so in order to do that the way I want to on my terms, I have. To I'm going to go do this right. first because and because I also love these other things too. They're just as fun to me. And important to me, so it, it really is a question for everybody. To the clarity themselves. in your thinking is so mind-boggling. I've always known. Yeah, it's not like I just have always inherently felt I would be doing what I wanted to do. Kind of, that's kind of the end of it. Like it was. There's no plan. Like I didn't. Um, it's funny, after college, which I went to school, my degree is in, like, musical theater directing, and I did do some of that after school, even though I have, my dreams have always stayed the same, that I wanted to make movies and TV, I didn't, like, okay, graduate school, and then my plan is to move to LA, like, right. I don't plan like that, and I've never believed in planning like that. Because I've always just inherently believed it was all the things were going to happen, and I and that doesn't come from a place of privilege or um, a place of um, uh, what's that word when you um, you don't feel like you earned it. You just feel like because you're you, you should yeah. You, you're you're because entitled. You're entitled. That's it. Entitled. 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 It does not come from a place of entitlement. I don't, like. I didn't grow up with anybody in the business. My parents are not artists. I mean, they appreciated pop culture, introduced me to pop culture for sure. And the nanny. And the nanny. My mom kind of looks like her. Um, but none of it was handed to me in any way. It does not make sense. Like oh, of course you'll go do this and mm-hmm. grow up in the city. Like, uh, it doesn't right. make any sense. But from a very young age, mm-hmm. I have just known that I was going to do it. And I've never um, questioned anything um, to get there. But I've also never planned so far ahead. I think planning is crazy. Because if you would ask, if we were doing this a year ago, I would have been working at the studio. Right? And... Um, Happily slash unhappily, like for various reasons, and um, and now I have this whole other thing. I would not have been able to predict it, and yet it is exactly right. And when I left school, like I said, I was like doing stuff, and I didn't have this plan to move to California or like work at an agency or anything like that. And then when I was temping, I got my job at BBC America through my temp agency, and of course, it is the very right. It's the very thing I needed to be doing. So I, I guess I have ne- not been able to identify the right word 
support it because it's not necessarily privilege. It's not necessarily luck. It's all the things come like it's my blind sort of faith in some ways in what it is, and but then you, doing all the things that it would take to you do it. You were working at a temp agency, right? Yeah. But you, you told them what you were looking for. So you, well, you are vocalizing like you know I'm working at a temp agency, but whoever you're working with there, you're telling them, I want to work in TV, or I want to work in... Mm, that's no? not quite how it happened. So they asked, they asked me. Well, they no, they knew my background, for sure. And I'm, I'm just saying they didn't like, blindly place you at BBC America. It wasn't like... No, but this is, this is a true story, okay. in that when I... So, Gail... Gail Bloom, Gail at Four Bloom Solutions. Was my temp agent... Um, so I was doing temp, true temp jobs because I was trying to do theater and I wasn't making any money and I was running out of money. I had enough money from my last summer at Christie to get me through like six or seven months to figure something out. And again, I had no plan. I wasn't like, I'm moving to LA. I'm going to start at CAA or do some, even in New York, you can do that. I yeah. didn't, it's not that I didn't even want to do it. I just didn't think that I didn't know anything about getting into this business. And so I was running out of money and I called Gail and I said, Gail, I'm going to probably need to do a full-time thing, some sort of job. Because I was doing, like, the gift show at the Javits Center and yeah. work at the USO, like, really yeah. true temp stuff. I said, Gail, I'm going to need um, a full-time gig. And she goes, okay, you're ready for that? And I was like, well, I'm running out of money, so it's that or bust. So she called me the next day, and she goes, I've got the perfect gig for you. She's great. And I said, terrific. What is it? She goes, it's a dental office in the Bronx. And I went, whoa, that I'm actually not as offended by the dentist thing as I am by the Bronx. I live in Washington Heights, and let me tell you, you can't cross that Harlem River. I'd have to go all the way down and go all the way up. It'll take me two hours to get there. Gail, what? What the fuck? No. Gail, what? Gail, what? So I said, no. I'm so sorry, but I cannot do that. She was like, you said you were ready. And I was like, no, I know, but like, Something a little, little closer, geographically even, like something. And then she called me with the BBC America gig. So, but you didn't have a caveat of like entertainment business. Well, I thought it was a given. My degree was in musical theater, but she, I mean, I honestly though, I really such a gift turkey. Like here's BBC America, Hillary. It really was because again, it's a blind faith thing. I I wish that I could tell you like. I would, had done all this rigorous planning or here's the way in. And in fact, when younger people in the business or people ask my story, I'm like, you can't follow what I did because I, I, I just had this inherent belief that I would be able to do it. And so, yes, the smart thing would have been to have said to Gail or to have researched temp agencies that work with entertainment companies <laughs> or like intern it but mm-hmm. through the page program. Or, I don't go work at CAA or WB or UT. program. But they all are in this city. This city is not inaccessible to the entertainment industry. There's a huge part of it here. In uh, some other path, some other life, I could be working on the SNL or the Tonight Show, like in a production sort of way. I didn't even think about it. It. I just was like, I, I need a job. I, uh, temp eight. Like, like it yeah. didn't occur to me. And so I feel like I've always had this very, like, lucky, I don't know, this invisible sort of leash taking me to where I need to go. And part of that, I think, is the inherent belief in it. 
part of it is certainly, I mean, this is all not to say I didn't do the work. I mean, I, I did, I think I worked hard to get where I am. But also, I'm, I, I'm an extreme optimist as well, which I think is um, really critical. Uncommon. Uncommon. I honestly, my biggest advice to anybody is just have some hope, man. Like, it's not, it's not a, and I, I was thinking about this today, I was at a meeting before this and um, with a, a writers um, a couple months ago, and I was thinking about life, and like, you put things into, like, if there's a quadrant, let's say, and you've got optimism and pessimism, yeah. and then pragmatism and delusion are usually the things we're working with when, when we're talking about operating principles. And most people, I think most people are delusional. And then half of us are optimists or pessimists. Because pessimists are just as, if not more delusional than optimists. The world is ending. I'm no good at what I do. Life is shit. But no, it's not. For you, it, if, if you're um, an immigrant living in a fucking death camp right now, yeah, life's pretty shit. Your life is fine. You're being a delu you're delusional. You do the work, live your life, meditate, I don't know, go for whatever you gotta do. Life is pretty okay. Optimists are also You're delusional. able. Like you're able. You're able bodied, you're probably fine monetarily speaking, or you have a safety net or something. You're uh, to the point and if you're I mean chances are if you're listening to this podcast that you are. There's obviously very chances many, are very very many people who are not in that category, but for most of our group, our friends, like this delusion that life is fucking terrible. I'm like, it isn't though. It's it only isn't. happening to you. Like my God, but optimists are also delusional, right? Dreamers and every all that. Like the when and I was talking to somebody today, and they're like, well, sometimes that delusion is what makes the optimist. I was like, no, it's not. It's the, the optimism itself is what makes things happen. You're pragmatic. I look at the world and I go, this is what it is. And because of that, I'm going to choose to do these things with it. Um, so it's like, I liken it to the matrix. Like, it's like you have to know the rules to break the rules. Mm -hmm. it, you know, you have to, once you know there is no spoon, you can bend the spoon. Know the ones and zeros. Get the facts and then choose to live your life mm -hmm. as optimistically as possible. Instead of marinating and like why everything is so yeah. terrible. It's to me the difference between like um, to bring it real practical. Like I don't understand people who wake up and watch the news um, from very present. I'm as pa I mean Dana has known me for a very long time. I'm very passionate about politics. You can ask any of my exes. My God, I mean it, I like anybody. I I can be brutal um, to talk to when it comes to these things. I'm very passionate about it. But watching the news, now, there's a difference between gaining information and gaining knowledge. You will certainly get information from the news. Facts, who, what, where, when, this is happening, that's happening. What I know to be true is that our country is certainly fucked right now, politically speaking, um, certainly leadership-wise speaking, lawfully speaking, all these things are fucking terrible. And I do not need the news to tell me that at all. I am not learning anything fundamental. Mm -hmm. So it blows my mind when I see all these people reading the 6 news. 6 a.m. Reading the news, doing all this stuff, already picking Democratic candidates. God bless you all. When, when there's a local vote, 
only 11% of the LA population turns out for it. Like, excuse me, it would have taken you legit five minutes to go vote today. And that vote, I mean, we just had one, it was like just over one ballot measure, and it was to put money into public schools. And 11% of the population, or of the voting population, showed up to vote. Like, and yet I've gotten emails every day of the week to go to some fundraiser for Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris from like Garcetti. You voted for him and then you didn't vote for the policy that he wanted to enact. Oh, interesting. So it, it just blow it just blows my mind that people think intaking news is is an active thing. No, it's a passive thing and it's rooted in, to me in pessimism and delusion. Whereas I will vote, I will donate money to any cause you want. I march every fucking time there's something to show up for it, every petition, every I will do the actions. And that's because pragmatically speaking, I understand that when you need to show up. And then optimistically speaking, I think if you show up, things will change. So it's just an operating system. Yeah. And I really think that because of my pragmatic approach to life, it allows me the optimism is the is the thing that gets me where I'm going, not the delusion, not the dreaming. I'm just, I see what it is and I think, okay, we're a pretty amazing species. Can you turn that switch? Do you think you're not born, do you have to be born with that? Or what do you think that is? Um, well, I know I don't think... Because I think this goes for ambition too, like, there's so many, like, other things yeah. that, like, no, I can I do that? Like, is it a switch I need to turn on? I do, I mean, I definitely think that there's, um, uh, nature versus nurture comes into play a lot. I, like, again, I don't, yeah, I, I definitely think that there's certainly privileges that play into the, the ability to do this, right? Like, you, if you, but whenever you see these stories of hope of people overcoming, like, people graduating college who came from families who never graduated high school, like, you see it all the time. They had no reason to be optimistic. Right. And, and yet, yet they did. Right, so and there is a born thing in it. Um, but I also think that it's, um, like, for me, there's definitely, um, like, a fire in me that, and I don't mean that as a virtue, I mean, like, there's anger in me, and, um, um, passion. I have famously, anger. famously. Well, she'll have to remind me. I try and put those days out of mind. No, I don't mean about any days. I'm just oh. like you. You can tell, like you know. I know oh, this. She we <laughs> we all know this about you. <laughs> Very fiery, and I think critically, like um, when my father passed away, um, definitely some sort of like light bulb went on. Not immediately, certainly not immediately, but the way in which I either chose nature versus nurture, also 50-50 here, and the way I dealt with his death and grief and the worldview on that and the things I um, educated myself to in terms of, like, uh, like I, I really believe in Taoism. Like, I'm not a practicing Taoist, to be very clear, but something I really like about Taoism and I think is really important when you're trying to um, put the world in order, which is true of human beings. Like, if you think of your brain as a computer, you know, it's the most powerful computer on the planet. That's why we're trying to create AI, right? It's like a god complex. Um, you're trying to literally recreate the human brain, which has an incredible processing power, but it's Achilles heel. It's always trying to, like, order things. So knowing that to be true, that's who we are as humans. Black and white. 
and it's it's just true. Yeah. Um, the binary, not but like it, it's just we really do this. We organize, and it's help. It's or it's 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 helping us process the world. So what I love about Taoism is the very pragmatic approach to faith, in that essentially, at least my interpretation of Taoism, is it is what it is because it is like that. It you there's no nothing to do about it. So like one of my favorite Taoist books, which is the first one that I read, and I usually hand to people um, who I know are grieving or have opened up to me in a certain way or just like looking for a, a, not a quick but just like oh, like something to relieve them of their thing I always um, I, I will send copies to people um, of the Tao of Pooh which is a Taoism as taught through Winnie the Pooh and the characters of that and one of my favorite like little things I would take from that book were um, there's this little passage about time and it's like you have to get over that we have this phrase in our, our, our vernacular of um, uh, saving time. You cannot save time. You don't have a piggy bank. There's no, oh, let me just pull out that time I saved. You choose to spend your time a certain way. And if you let, want to choose to spend your time dilly-dallying on your phone and then going, oh, 10 minutes to get ready, that's perfectly wonderful. Like, there's no judgment on that. If you would rather spend two hours, I'm going to slowly walk to where I want to go instead of taking a train. You're choosing to spend your time in one way as opposed to another way. And just organizing the world around that, that as, as somebody who's a control freak, um, I'm a Virgo, the biggest thing for me about life has been going, and it's I can relate this to performers, is you can only control so much, right? All I can do at an audition, right, is show up and sing my little heart out or whatever. Give the best performance I can give. From there, out of my Forget control. about it. Forget about it. You, it could be they already cast the role. It could be you chose a song that reminds me of my ex. It could be your slot is at 12.30 and I want to eat lunch. It could be, oh, so close, you're just not quite what we're looking for. Like, all of these different things. All you can do is do what you can do best. So as a control freak, it was helpful to learn at an early, I, I don't wish death upon anybody at an early age, but to learn early on the definition of no control, which is death. There's literally nothing you can do about it. Everything else, like certainly relationships feel that brutal. In fact, breakups I've gone through have felt harder to me than the death of my father in some ways because we weren't that close. Like, there's all these nuances to it. But it's so final. Sure, anyone, any person that I've dated or been in love with, those things could change at a drop of hat. We could align once again and be together. Who fucking knows? Death, literally nothing I can do will bring that person back into life. So when you reorient yourself to control, it's an amazing way to walk through life. Because, again, I... I love having information. I tend to be fairly forward with my feelings. Mo not because I'm some incredible, like, pillar of, con like, I've got my shit together. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I need to know the answer so that then I can operate based on that information. So That's also mm -hmm. rare. And people who would do that 
I welcome it. People are afraid of the answer because then it becomes an active role for you. Yes. You have to do something yes. about it. So if I live in the gray zone, I don't say I like you, mm -hmm. and I don't tell you that I like you, because then I can live, well, I don't know, you're living in the gray zone. If I say I like you and you go, I'm so sorry I don't feel that way about you. Okay, now I can, but now I can operate and go, well, I gotta get over this person, or I gotta win them over, whatever. Right. For, you can choose whatever path you want, and we can argue which way you should go. But it doesn't matter. You can make an active choice there. And in the best case scenario, they go, well, I like you too. Terrific. Okay. Worst case scenario, you have the information you need to fucking move on. And that is really, really... So it's it's still all about control for me. I, I, like, I am not... I'm no better than anybody else. I have just as many control issues, but I, the way I use it is I need the information so I can control my part Do of you it. think that's different than vulnerability? No. Or do you, th you think it's the same? I do. Um, my gut instinct was to say no, clearly, because I said it so quickly. The intent but is different, but it's it's kind of the same. No, I think they're the same thing. I think we could all do with a tremendous amount of vulnerability, and I think that um, that comes to emotional uh, vulnerability, sexual vulnerability. I think, like, I don't mean this in any overt sexual way. I just mean if we were in a sex-positive society, we would not have Me Too movements. We would not need them. Um, we don't need anything like that because it shouldn't be this obvious, but talking about masturbation and that is different. Like if the three of us consent to talking about masturbation, that is a very different thing than me going, Dana, I masturbated to you last night. Those are different things. And the fact that we're in a society that doesn't inherently understand why those are different things is because we're not in a sex positive place. Everybody should just be open and free to talk about whatever they want. Consent, it always comes down to consent. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. Mm -hmm. And you can't consent to anything if you don't speak up about what you want. During that Me Too movement, a lot of the conversation was around fear, right? Women are afraid to speak up. And I think that is true for some people. They are afraid to speak up from the actual fear of retaliation, fear of violence, fear of whatever. Well, we're not seeing it go well when right, you right. speak up. Right, Like, there's but, no... Yes, there's fear of so many actual practical fears. But I don't actually have that fear. And I actually don't think, I would say 50-50, practical fears. A lot of the fear, for me, or it wasn't fear at all. It was um, exhaustion. Because what happens when you speak up particularly to men who identify themselves as feminists. I'm like, I'm down for a straight-up misogynist because I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you at all. I know where you stand, and you're a fucking idiot. For men who claim that they are feminists, when you go, and they say something, and you go, oh, actually, Joe, that made me quite uncomfortable, they then go, no, 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 but I didn't mean it like that. I'm a feminist. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, cool, so now this is about you. And now I've got to explain to you why... No, I think you're cool, man, but I really just didn't want you to say that to me. I'm tired of having to explain. And when, had you just said, oh, okay, cool, I won't say that again. Okay, great. I wouldn't have thought anything of it. I wasn't commenting on your entire profile as a person who loves or does not love women. You have now made me have to explain that and make you validate you as a feminist. 
That's crazy. And I think, mm-hmm. so there was fear, for sure, practical, pragmatic fear that a lot of people went through, and certainly direct victims of some of these very, very, very terrible um, people. But the, the more the microaggressions or the harassment that people feel on a day-to-day, and this is not about just women, this is anybody who's about harassment, it's about what happens when you do speak up it's not it's not something pragmatic. It's like mental exhaustion. Like I, there were times like, and this is just true of the industry. So I don't, I'm not calling out anybody specifically. Where you're like, I, why do I feel like a broken record? Saying I think we should hire more women. All of a sudden, I feel like a broken record. That the exhaustion of that. It's like, so you just are like, I, I'm not saying you guys aren't feminists for. Because you haven't thought of it, but as the woman in the room, I'd like to say that. And then they go, you know, of course, the pool, and you're like, ah, oh, I just, okay, never mind. Like, and that's what I think ha- has happened to half mm-hmm. the conversation. Never yep. mind. Yeah, it's not worth my time. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> Question number one. Yes. What was your first impression of each of us? Um. Okay. No, I think uh, my very. It's hard to like. I, I find hindsight to be quite difficult, and not create a commentary. But I feel like when I first met you, you might have had a very large bag with you. Um, it's back in the purse days, like a very large purse, and that you were just very kind and open, like like an immediate kind of intimacy that you create with people, and I think that's a really wonderful. There's been a handful of people I've met in my life, and this might be so wrong, because, again, it's just a first impression. I'm trying to put myself in Yeah. Um, um, people I've met in my life where, um, like, I think most people are like, um, you're not my friend until I get to know you, and then you're my friend. And I've met a handful of you special people where you're my friend until you prove not to be my friend. And that, I think, is very special. It means you're so open. You give so many people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's very wonderful. And I wish more people, including myself, were like that. I'm a little bit more like, not in earn, earn sort of way, just more like I open up more as I get to know people. And you're like, hello, okay. And then you'll slowly weed people out. Like it's this weird, it's the opposite sure. gradient. That's it it, it is the opposite gradient, yeah. yeah you, I'm not saying you stay friends with people forever. You're just like, benefit it out, we're friends. Yeah. Oh, where'd those people go? Oh, I've had jury duty. I get yeah. innocent till proven guilty. Yeah. And I and most people are the other way, so I think that's very special. And again, a large bag. Um, Dana. First impression of Dana would have been Aquisasana. Um, and... 2007 or 8? 8. 2008. Because that's when I was a performer for the first year. You were a performer for the first year. And you... You know, it's actually interesting um, because we were both at very different places in our lives. Um, But I actually really remember um, seeing you and you're a very confident person. At least outwardly... you know, you present confidently, and I was not um, out yet, and I remember being like, oh, 
she like the way you said to me like what's it like being a cool husband in LA which I don't still don't know anything about to be clear um, I was like oh that's what it's like to be a confident out person um, I remember that very specifically um, and being like wow what how cool would it be to know yourself that well I always felt like you had this confidence about existing in the world um, as she rolls her eyes <laughs> no I didn't roll my eyes <laughs> That's a Freudian slip. Thank you so much. That's very sweet. I didn't, yeah. But, and you were also, like, in love with somebody, which is really fun to witness. I met you under completely different contexts. Completely context. under it's so the weirdest. It's so crazy, um, the context in which we met and yep. the people who we've become. Yeah. Remarkable. Hi, ho! If you were the eighth dwarf, what would your name be? Oh, God. I'd almost rather Dana answer that for me. Um, I would say, is there, like, a solid dwarf? Someone, like... Just <laughs> <laughs> a liquid dwarf? You're a, you're a solid dwarf. No, it, I, feel, I feel like that term is funny, but it also is... Listen to me. It's all encompassing of, like... This person, wait, listen, listen, like, this person has got you. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're solid, you're legit, you're fucking cool, solid. Uh, I'm not going to say supportive, because that's not, that's like in service of, no, you're like, independent dwarf. dwarf. I would say solid dwarf. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong? Solid as in, like, the it's LA solid. term of solid, yeah. Wicked Dwarf. Where can people find you online? Um, what, are, what are you working on right now? Like, tell us what's happening. Well, my Insta handle is my name. Um, it's very simple. Um, I don't use Twitter. I think I have one, um, but I literally haven't clicked on it in years. I think it is the id of social media. So you can't find me on there. I occasionally will click into Facebook because I hate Facebook and I don't use it and I don't update. But there has been this like collective of, of um, like female directors and stuff and it, I do find it, it tends to be good for group efforts. So I occasionally check into Facebook um, for certain group situations. But otherwise social media is really... I, I, it's Instagram, if you wanted to find me that way. Um, I think if that's the question you're asking me. I literally live in Los Angeles, though, so you'll have to find me there. Yes. It has been... Thank you so much for giving us, like, your last night in town. A damn pleasure. Um, a, a thrill, truly. This is probably what we would have done anyway. We yes. just would have been not with these microphones yes. sitting yeah. in front of us. Yes. And now we're going to have some dinner and, like... Talk off mic. Talk off mic. Really get into the nitty gritty. Because the world is some binary, everybody. Speaking of binary, bye. In the Room with Stephen and Dana is produced by Stephen Farizee and Dana Craig. Special thanks to Joel Wagoner for tinkling the ivories on our theme song. Hit him up at joelwagoner.com. We apologize, and you're welcome. 
We'd also like to thank Jesse Weiner, W-I-E-N-E-R, for our jazzy original music sprinkled throughout each episode. You can find him at jessewiener.com. Last but certainly not least, we'd like to thank Kevin Thomas Garcia for taking all of our ridiculous photos. You can find him online at ktgnyc.com. We are all over the internet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at In The Room Pod. Follow us, like us, share us, pimp us out. And don't forget to subscribe to In The Room Podcast. We everywhere, so subscribe. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.